0: Case number 22-3062, United States of America versus Thomas Robertson at balance. Mr. Cohn for the balance, Mr. Pierce for the appellee.
1: Mr. Cohn. Good morning.
2: <laughs> the first issue I will focus on is the sentencing issue. The And to step back for a second, and to look at how the guidelines address obstruction of justice. If one uh, if a person is under indictment and obstructs that proceeding, the guidelines provide in three c one point two a two level enhancement. Uh, my research suggests the most common way of getting that enhancement in this district is by lying under oath during one's own. Behavior. Then the guidelines set back and look more broadly at persons, who have managed to get themselves prosecuted and convicted for
3: obstruction of justice.
2: And there, as the government points out at page 4303, there are a number of ways that one's obstruction can wind up being prosecuted, obstructing uh, falsifying papers relating to imported merchandise obstructing an investigation under the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, obstruction under 1505 of proceedings before departments and agencies. The government perhaps tellingly does not include in its list 18 U.S.C. 1503, which is the classic obstruction of the administration of justice statute. Um, Within the way the guidelines work is Within all those offenses, if one is convicted of obstructing the administration of justice, then there are two enhancements that apply. One, and by the way, all of this I think is pretty straightforward. Um, One is for causing physical injury or threatening to cause physical injury uh, to a person in order to obstruct the administration of justice or causing property damage, and for that, the guidelines provide a severe eight-level enhancement. The guidelines also provide that if the offense was a three-level enhancement, if the offense resulted in substantial interference with the administration of justice. So we have a subset within a subset persons, and Mr. Robinson does not fall within the first subset. He was convicted of things like uh, bringing a dangerous weapon to, um, to Capitol Hill, uh, obstructing Congress under Section 15C2, which in the balance of my time, I'd like to get to that the validity of that. But even assuming that's a valid conviction, there's no Obstructing the administration of justice, and Judge McFadden wrote a very good opinion on that, um, and that's why we quoted it at length in our initial brief. The um,
0: Did you make this argument in the below Where we is it forfeited, and do we have to look at this? Yes, Your plain Honor. Error review?
2: Yes, Your Honor. The argument was very. Much, um, was made for sentencing. First, it was clearly an objection to this account, to the eight level and three level.
0: But not on this basis. Uh,
2: well, the basis, I'll uh, let the court heed the judge. I mean, we have the transcript is right here. Is pages 16 through 20 of the uh, sentencing hearing. The, uh, the, mo- the most telling words, in a way, well, first of all, you have uh, the... Um, Defense counsel echoing in advance Judge McFadden saying, Judge, we don't have an investigation here. We don't have our client interfering with an investigation. If one reads Judge McFadden's opinion, he rejects the cases that my colleague cited. He you tell us which, an of, which
3: of the appendices you're in when you're citing 16 to 20 of the sentencing transcript. Is that? Uh, That's probably going to Robertson's. Um, yes, I'm sorry. At a 68 to 72.
2: There we Yes, exactly right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm more accustomed, I'll admit, to citing directly to the record, but yes, you're exactly right, Judge. 868 eight sixty nine, 69, just all the way through. And um, the, the um, so echoing Judge McFadden, defense counsel says, there's no investigation here. And that's what this enhancement is for, is for interfering with an investigation. So you have the objection. Then uh, the prosecutor says, the defendant here is missing the mark. He was convicted of obstructing the election certification. And, you know, summarize, that's what makes him subject to this. And so that's the erroneous argument in our view. And Judge Cooper adopts the erroneous view. He says, the court finds that the enhancement applies. The offense did result in a substantial interference, given both the delay that the riot caused in the certification proceeding, which is a proceeding at issue, and the expenditure of substantial resources that was necessary to fix the damage that was made, that was done to the Capitol. Um, That's what Judge Cooper said. And honestly, I have tremendous respect for Judge Cooper, but here he's completely wrong. It's not, the guidelines are not looking at the repair costs to the Capitol. but guidelines are looking, as defense counsel rightly pointed, to when a defendant or a person lies and causes the government to expend additional resources in order to uncover the truth and to pursue its investigation. That's what this guideline is directed at.
0: Could you move on to the other issue, please? Yes, Your Honor. On this one,
2: on the corruptly issue, I, I begin with unusual humility which is that um, as, as, uh, as re-reading the, North, the Oliver North case before this case, before preparing for, and for this, and then of course the Fisher decision, a lot has been written by eminent jurists about the meaning of the word corrupt. I've done my very best in my briefs, give my honest view of what this term means.
0: Do you think that corruptly can be proved by the use of unlawful means? or only purpose?
2: It's the word unlawful that I stop at. Um, But
0: but you agree that it can be proved by means as well as purpose? By means,
2: yes. But I don't think it's the unlawfulness of the means that is the, that should be in the law.
0: But if you agree that it can be proved by unlawful means, then the additional element that you're proposing isn't necessary in every case.
2: Well, I'm not sure what additional element I'm proposing. I That there
0: has to be a benefit right. to myself or another. A, no, no. I, if I you can I prove with that with means. No,
2: no. I don't think means alone uh, what does it. I actually think, Judge, now that I'm clear about the direction you're taking, benefit plays a crucial role
1: in Well, let, let me
0: this. ask you, though. In the court below, the, your instruction your client requested said to act corruptly, the defendant must use unlawful means or have a wrongful or unlawful purpose, or both. And if means is one way of getting at this, then the element that you propose to add is not necessary.
2: Yes, Judge, but I am focused on what the statute requires and the defendant, to his credit, in his post-trial motion for a new trial, focused on on the absence any evidence of an unlawful advantage, of an additional, not unlawful, of an an advantage that he had got. And I read the word advantage in his motion to be the equivalent of benefit, and it's often used interchangeably. I I
0: understand that, but I think, what I'm just trying to get at is that you took a position in the district court, and I'm asking you now, about whether corrupt means is a way of proving corruptly, or does it, or can it only be proved with corrupt purpose? And it seems to me that you made a concession that means is one way of getting at this. And the case law seems to indicate that means is a way of getting at this. And if means is a method of proving it, then the additional element you're proposing, which goes to benefit to another, that only goes to purpose. And so therefore, if means is a way of getting at this, what you're proposing is not necessary to prove corruptly in every case.
2: Let me me answer your question, I hope I'm answering it correctly, with um, with the observations that both the majority in North and the dissent made. And they recognize the example of someone who calls a member of a congressional committee and says, listen, this is an improper investigation. You need to cut this out. Okay. The, the means there is not in and of itself going to tell us whether or not the, the corruptly wrong of the men's rea satisfied.
0: That's true, and what Judge um, Silverman said in North was that if you have an unlawful means, um, that should be sufficient. But where the independent means are not criminal or unlawful, then you have to go to purpose.
2: He does say that, but he said it in dissent. And- um, Correct. Right. And but so, I guess
0: what we're trying to get at is whether means is a way of proving this as well as purpose. And it seems that they are two alternative ways of proving corrupt. Yes,
2: but I, as I as just said, I don't think alternative is the right way, and I especially do not agree with Judge Silverman's view that the independently unlawful means, um, a term that found itself in another recent decision of this court, is the right approach to addressing what corruptly means.
3: Let me, let me ask you, Mr. Cohn, about <laughs> the logic of the benefit limitation um reading, again, reading the discussion in North and, and some of the other cases, um, the concern, especially when we're talking about obstruction of Congress, is that there's a lot of, you know, sort of hurly-burly in the political process where it's completely appropriate to try to influence or slow down or, you know, change the priorities of what Congress is up to, uh, to to meet the needs of one's client, whether one's a lobbyist or, you know, member of public who's seeking a particular kind of legislation or inquiry into a particular person or whatever, and all of that, you know, much of that may be protected by the First Amendment, but it all of it meets your ostensibly limiting, you know, benefit for self or others definition. So if if the major conundrum in um, Interpreting corruptly is to make it meaningfully limiting. When obstruction applies to Congress, it seems like your definition completely fails in that regard because the legitimate lobbying or demonstrating or the like
2: usually yield the benefit. At the risk of being um, the uh, self-defensive, the word "benefit" comes from eminent jurists like Justice Scalia. So um, the and and it's repeated by a colleague of yours in the Fisher opinion. Atlanta.
3: You're talking about Judge Walker's, correct? And although he would find it met here. He would find it, or he he suggests it may well be met here. Didn't have to go that far, but he said, you know, if the if the effort of people like Mr. Robertson is, I want my preferred candidate to be in the White House, not the one who they're getting ready, whose election results they're getting ready to certify.
2: Now, I, I understand, Judge, and as I say, I, I disagree with Judge Walker on that. Unfortunately, in this time, I have not gotten to the word dishonestly, which finds itself in Anderson again and again used, and indeed in, in the Arthur Anderson case of the Supreme Court, and not just innocuously. It's the failure of the jury instruction to include the word dishonestly that was in the Fifth Circuit's pattern jury instructions that caused the conviction to be reversed in Anderson. So it's an important word. What does dishonestly
0: mean in this context?
2: I, well, what does it add? What it, one thing it adds is to my answer to Judge Pillar, which is that yes, benefit may not, in and of itself, in all cases, be a sufficient limiting rule. That is why we need to examine the dishonest, um, the dishonest purpose to a person who, uh, who to use the example that is, I think in the North case, person tells his client, "You don't need to respond to this congressional investigation," just as innocuous advice. That's fine. But the person who knows that the congressional investigation, the lawyer. A lawyer who knows that this investigation actually is targeting him and he would, would, want, would want to um, avoid that. Now, when he advises the client and fails, say, to disclose that this is the reason why he's giving this advice. But, but, what, now if does, being me, but what
0: if he does disclose it? What if he's honest about it? It says, don't testify because it'll get me in trouble. Yes. You're saying that's not obstruction.
2: It, it, it's still obstruction because but that's of the benefit. But that's honest. I understand, Your, I understand, your Honor. But realistically, I, good point. But I, it's a very good point, Your
0: Honor. It can't but, have to be dishonest because if you're honestly corrupt, that's still obstruction.
2: Your Honor, it's telling to me that in the North case, when the majority opinion um, turned to what does corrupt mean, the first word it used was clandestinely creating a false chronology.
0: That's sufficient but not necessary. I'm just saying dishonesty, it doesn't seem that that is a requirement because you can be honestly corrupt, be completely forthcoming about it, and it's still obstruction. So it can't be that it has to be dishonest in every instance. It would be sufficient if it's dishonest, but it's not necessary.
2: I I disagree, Your Honor. I think dishonesty is a very, is an essential Aspect of distinguishing between people who are honest and forthright and are not trying to, to uh, subvert the truth-finding process on the one hand and those who are trying to subvert it. It's, it's there's, so this if you some could, accident, it, it's in the Fifth Circuit.
0: Right. Okay, then if you could address the hypothetical then of the attorney that you posited who honestly says to his client, don't testify at the hearing because then I will get in trouble. That's not, that in your view is not it, That's not our case. And it's an interesting. Right? It's case. a hypothetical that right. addresses your claim that it has to be dishonest in every instance in order to be corrupt under this statute.
2: Yeah. I mean, just thinking out loud, I'd say he's not obstructing justice. He's told his client, and now the question, he's told his client his motive, and now, if the client goes ahead and doesn't testify, is the lawyer is the lawyer obstructing justice? He's told his client right up front, it's because it's me. I, I'm not sure that amounts to obstruction
0: of justice. That seems untenable to me, counsel.
3: Is there, reading the cases, and I suppose, you know, particularly when the, the phrase comes up, uh, you know, Unlawful means or unlawful purpose. Um, it's it. This feels like a very mercurial concept, corruptly, and indeed that judges and lawyers have treated it as if it can be met in different ways depending on the circumstances. That we that it's not like we're gonna. And I've seen a court <laughs> too bad um, give one definition that always applies. Do you agree with that, that the the Mm. minimum may depend a little bit on the nature of the charged corruption?
2: Judge, the the way I try to address that in the supplemental brief is is slightly differently, is I note, and North is a good example, that in most cases, judges don't need to get into the meaning abruptly because it's so implicit and inherent in the dishonesty. That that the dishonesty is so clear, the corruption is so clear, from the core example of bribing uh, someone to get a, a result, that it's not so much the mercurial aspect of the word; it's the fact that it's unnecessary to dwell on it, except in the type of hypothetical, candidly, that Judge was asking me, "What is that corrupt or is it not? The situation, the unusual situation where a lawyer would say to his client. And so... Um, well, isn't
1: the problem there that it's not an honest corruption, it's an open corruption? In other words, he tells his client, I don't want you to show up because it might implicate me. That's not honestly corrupt, it's openly
2: corrupt. That's right, Judge. But the, it's not. But the, I, I have a trouble putting openly and corrupt together. To my mind, corruption is necessarily not open. So to say it's openly corrupt is a paradox at best. It's it's it, those terms don't easily stay together. When one looks, I'm sure, in fact, at the I think the decisions I, think I that could set name
1: them, I think I could name several political figures who have been openly corrupt. I won't, but
3: we'll disagree about that maybe. No, I'm just
1: saying I, I
3: that. I think her question is a helpful one. Mm. I mean, that, well, I'm not sure. Um, you know, so, so someone who is openly corrupt may still be being dishonest, and therefore the statute still does work, in the case of the hypothetical that that Judge Pan poses, and therefore it may be in keeping with the language and purpose of the statute to to include the requirement that you're pressing.
2: Yes, Judge Killard, and to to turn back to Judge Pan's hypothetical, um, perhaps the jury would have to decide what dishonesty meant in that situation. Allow me to add, in the lead opinion in Fisher, one of the, I thought, extremely useful aspects of it was the summary of all the 1512 C2 cases. And if you look at those prosecute the appellate cases, if you look at them, one after another involved concealment, clandestine activity, falsifying records, each one of them, the word dishonestly, acting dishonestly.
3: Where, where are That's you true. looking?
2: The the I, I, I cited in the supplemental brief. It's it's a it's a string cite that the lead opinion makes to all cases involving the affirmance of convictions under 18 U.S.C. 1512 C two.
0: Uh, it's it's that, uh, I cited in the supplemental brief. But to my mind, that again shows sufficiency, but not necessarily necessity. But I take your position to be. That in all cases, applying this statute, there has to be a corrupt purpose, and that purpose has to include trying to obtain a benefit for oneself or another, that that's the only way to prove corruptly. That's your position, correct?
2: I think so, I think the way you put it. But again, no, to the extent that I think the word dishonestly, that kind of, is a way that summarizes the cases that are in that long paragraph. That's, that's the motive, that's what's animating these people, and that's what distinguishes them from, say, the, the hypothetical we
0: were talking about. The but, but there doesn't seem to be a textual basis for what you're asking. You're saying that in all instances under this statute, corruptly has to include trying to obtain a benefit for oneself or another. What's the textual basis
2: for that? I'm not sure what you mean by textual basis. Where the text all...
0: just says corruptly. Yes,
2: we we're, we're trying our best to try to give meaning to that to that term, a, a meaning that's often hidden in the in the opinion because it's so implicit. Yes, in the context.
0: And, and the only precedent that applies this standard is in the tax context, and it, it seems to me that. It makes a lot more sense in that context because in tax law, you can make a mistake. And if you're not trying to benefit yourself, it's just kind of a mistake, it shouldn't be a crime. But if you do your taxes in a way that you benefit, you get more money back, then it makes sense that that crosses the line to make something corrupt. It makes sense in that context. How does it make sense in this context? The the tangible benefit, how does the
2: tangible benefit make sense? I think it makes sense in, the exa- in this example that we were talking about earlier that, that the, uh, the court talks about in the North case. If a client comes to a lawyer, says I've been asked to testify before.
0: No, I'm talking about this context, obstruction of an official proceeding. I'm saying it makes sense to import that requirement in the tax context because of the nature of tax law. Tax laws are complicated. So in order for you to be criminally liable For doing your taxes wrong, you had to have been trying to get a benefit for yourself. But why does it make sense in an obstruction of an official proceeding context to require a benefit?
2: Fortunately, Judge Pan, I think on this aspect of the case, we agree. I don't look at tax law as the model here. I look at the North case, which involved interference with a congressional committee under 1505. I look at 1503, the administration of justice statute. It seems to me, and I, it's, it's- But simple. the North case didn't require
0: the benefit. It was the Aguilar case that did.
2: That's right, Your Honor, but I'm,
0: and, and, and Aguilar was uh, was also not a tax case. But gift. if you're relying on North, though, North doesn't say that that's a ne- necessary requirement of- corruption. No, I, I understand,
2: Your Honor, where North was struggling with these terms, Fisher struggled with these terms, I'm struggling with these terms. We're, we're all trying to give meaning to, to a work. Speaking of which, an important but, point... But
3: to say, wait, just going back to your reliance on North, I mean, this case seems very different from North, where the central issue in North was the admissibility or not of or the, whether the jury should have been instructed that North believed himself to be authorized and whether evidence of authorization, because that would go to his understanding of what he was doing. But there's, there's no question here, either as a matter of instruction or as a matter of record, the sufficiency of the evidence, that that Mr. Robertson thought that he was doing something that was lawful. I mean, that's not his defense. He was convicted of using violence to overcome police, to storm and vandalize the Capitol, to enter areas en masse during the certification proceeding. You know, acting in a manner that was calculated to intimidate lawmakers to prevent them from fulfilling their duty. And so it just seems like the issue that was that was central in North is, is not helpful to your client.
2: Your Honor, um, the North case is cited at length in the Fisher decision, it's cited at length in the government's brief. So it seems like it's a useful poll here to, to look at. The uh, Allow me to add an important point, please, which is that, as I note in the brief, 1503, another obstruction statute, talks about corruptly or by force or threats of force. To my mind, what's going on there is that those concepts, although of equal moral culpability, corruptly by force, by threats of force, are distinct ways of obstructing. And my client, which I think goes in part to your question, Judge is my client is being held accountable under 15C2 for basically using force and threatening physical injury. And that's a distinct way of prosecuting someone for obstruction that I don't understand the lead opinion to be necessarily endorsing, or at least endorsing to the point of reckless conduct. But the lead opinion talks about assaultive conduct. But my client was convicted of carrying a stick into the Capitol. And so are we going to stretch assaultive conduct to what I see as a reckless mindset? It's we're already going into the physical force, which is not in the statute, 156, and now we're going into
0: reckless Bringing a stick. So, so the, the lead opinion talks about independently unlawful conduct. And that is a concept that is also in the North opinion, also in Aguilar. And in Fisher, the one of the independently unlawful conducts happened to be assault of conduct. But there are other types of independently unlawful conduct, such as brandishing a stick, being disorderly, etc. And the case law. And the lead opinion seems to agree that independently unlawful conduct is a basis for finding corruptly.
2: Right. And I, as you were disorderly, just picking up on that, Judge Van, The The difficulty I have with that is that are we going to now say someone committed the misdemeanor of disorderly conduct? And res, that resulted in, 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 in delaying the electoral count.
0: And now they're subject to a 20-year maximum? Well, no, there are other elements of the offense, but it it might be sufficient to support corruptly, but you still have to meet other elements of the offense, including, the the nexus requirements and all the other things.
2: Yeah, but let's assume the others are met. Let's assume that his actions during the riot did contribute, Robertson's actions, to somehow delaying the electoral count so that under Uh, that a jury could conclude that the act element was satisfied. Now are we going to say, well, and all you have to do is act disorderly in terms of your mental thing, which is because that's independently unlawful. Um, You're now subject to a 20-year maximum sentence because you went and trespassed in Congress and acted in a disorderly manner. It seems to me, as Judge Kansas noted in dissent, this is, a, this is a troublesome road to go down, that if you acted his words, not mine, in, in an illegal way, in, in some small way, his words, then now you're subject to the 20-year maximum of this sentence, of this statute, I'm sorry. So. Um,
3: well, it is just like, a, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. What about the subset, if, if wrongful means is understood to at least encompass independently criminal means? or even knowingly engaging in independently criminal means, or even knowingly engaging in independently felonious means. Mm. It would seem that any of those definitions would be met by the, the evidence here would be sufficient to establish those.
2: Unfortunately, yes. That's why I'm urging this court not to go down that road. It's, it's and you know, drafters of criminal law and interpreters of criminal law, avoid saying your conduct was unlawful because it was felonious. That's, that's a very, and in fact, by the way, that is a holding of the majority in the North case. We don't do that. So we have to find another way in saying your conduct was felonious, your conduct was unlawful, to define
0: a crime. I take your argument to be that because it is broad, we should interpret it to narrow it. The Congress can write a broad statute. Is is the breadth in itself a reason for us to, to interpret this a certain way if we're not at the point of, I guess, unconstitutionally broad, which nobody's saying? Mm. And, and, and the fact that it's a 20-year maximum, that's just the maximum. Um, presumably, um, if this were to actually go to sentencing, a judge would take into account all the different factors. And it's very unlikely that anybody's going to get the maximum for some of the hypotheticals that you're positing.
2: Your Honor, I, I the, the, but that, so let me sure I understand the question is, is, if the question is, will my client, did my client get the 20 year maximum? The no, answer, of course, no, no, my,
0: my client, my point is that you're arguing that we shouldn't subject people who their independently unlawful means as a misdemeanor, for example, they shouldn't be subjected to a 20-year maximum. Um, number one, I'm I'm wondering, is breath alone a reason to affect the way we interpret this? Because Congress can write a broad statute. And number two, we're just talking about a maximum sentence. It, it seems like you're assuming that everybody's getting 20 years for this, but whoever the sentencing judge is is going to take into account. All the factors under 3553, and presumably, if all they did was act in a disorderly way, they're not getting 20 years. Mm. That's just the max.
2: Right. Let me then talk about Brett and talk about that. Okay. Uh, I do think mm. that Brett is, it's the, the breadth is talked about in Fisher, it's talked about in North. To some extent, candidly, as we say in our supplemental brief, I think those concerns about breadth are a bit exaggerated. But the breadth is always a concern when one looks at the a criminal statute. And as Judge Katzis noted candidly, it seems like a really unlikely place for Congress to have placed a broad statute, section fifteen C two. Doesn't really seem to be aimed at catching a lot of wrongdoers. But so I think breadth should be a concern of this court, as it should be in, in in interpreting all criminal statutes in a way. Now turning to the max, my point on the, you're quite right, Judge. Mann. As a realistic matter, um, do criminal defendants get the maximum sentence? No, on ordinary. But the bigger point, though, is as one steps back and looks at the severity of the crime, and it's difficult to measure the severity of the crime other than by looking at the statutory maximum, um, then the statu- if the statutory maximum is a pretty objective measure of the gravity of the crime, the question then becomes, have you, by, as you were just saying, um, gone to Congress and engaged in disorderly conduct, has the fact that that caused a delay in the electoral college- Suddenly aggravated the severity of your conduct, the culpability, to the point where you are now subject to a statute with a 20 year maximum. And where, yes, if you misbehave in some ways, you might hit that maximum.
1: All right. Any more questions? All right. I'll we'll give you a couple of minutes to reply. Uh, Mr. Pierce.
2: Thank you. <clears throat>
4: Good morning. May it please the Court, James Pierce United States. A defendant who intentionally obstructs congressional proceeding by using independently unlawful means or animated by a corrupt purpose, acts corruptly for purposes of Section 1512C2. Defendant Thomas Robertson acted corruptly through the intended and actual use of unlawful violence to obstruct the joint session on January 6th. The District Court but also correctly applied to sentencing enhancements under Section 2J 1.2, and this Court should affirm. Now, I'd like to start with the corruptly issue. I think it's useful to situate uh, Section 1512C2's uh, mens rea somewhat more broadly. It, in our view, comprises three, there's three components. It's the defendant's intent to obstruct, that the defendant acted corruptly, and then the nexus to a pending or reasonably foreseeable uh, official proceeding. Uh, of course, what is presented here is just the corruptly question. Uh, as my introduction made clear, our view is consistent with the case law, with Judge Silverman's separate opinion in North, uh, with what Congress itself did when it defined corruptly for purposes of Section 1505 in Section 1515b: is that uh, a defendant can act corruptly either through the use of independently uh, unlawful means. Or through corrupt purpose. Uh, and I, I, it's common ground with my friend on the other side that if we are in a world of corrupt purpose, there are various ways to get there, including using deceit or dishonesty, uh, including seeking an unlawful advantage or benefit. I would actually add a couple of others that I think the case law includes uh, seeking to violate a legal duty. I think that one, for example, could deal with the hypothetical of the lawyer urging someone else to lie. In fact, I think there are two reasons why that would would be corrupt. One is that's an act of corrupt persuasion uh, that is independently criminalized under 1512B. But even if if that weren't the case, um, it would be asking someone else to violate a legal duty. This this court's decision in Morrison, I think a 1996 decision, talked about exhorting someone else to violate a legal duty. actually, closely similar wasn't a lawyer, but... Uh, I think a criminal defendant asking someone else to lie—that's um, that's, that's a, a obstruction by asking someone else to violate a, a legal duty. Um, you, in terms of uh, you know, uh, where's the line of independently criminal means? I think uh, Judge Pillar, your your question highlights that certainly to resolve this case, um, all this court needs to say is independently felonious means uh, is is sufficient. I mean here the defendant violated three, uh, uh, committed three felonies, uh, uh, criminal trespass with a dangerous weapon in a restricted area, uh, disorderly and disruptive conduct with a dangerous weapon uh, in a restricted area, and then an act of, of impeding or uh, obstructing officers. Let me
1: ask you this. What if we, if you just indulge me a minute, what if we need to find more? What if we need to find what I think is a holding in Fisher? I think I'm minority in that view, but that we need to find a benefit to the defendant or to another. Where is the evidence in this trial of a benefit either to Robertson or to another, and based, I guess, on Fracker's
4: testimony? So so we don't think that's uh, necessary, but- I realize that. uh, But the, uh, I think it It would be, be, The evidence that uh, uh, the defendant's communications leading up to January 6th making clear his views uh, that the election was stolen and was fraudulent, uh, rigged, uh, and that he intended to be part of a counterinsurgency to try to stop that election result from being certified in some way, with the benefit being uh, retaining, retaining in office his preferred political candidate. Uh, I read the concurring opinion uh, in Fisher to suggest that would be the type of benefit that would meet this test. Uh, I think, I'm sorry.
1: I realize that.
4: I I think Judge Pillard's concern, though, is quite apt here, which is that, frankly, in the context of congressional obstruction like we have here, uh, and I I, I read this uh, in part, Judge Katzis' critique in Fisher, Um, it it gets somewhat complicated to conceptualize what a benefit might look like uh, and one could could conceivably just describe as a benefit whatever it is one wants to accomplish. Uh, And I think that's one of the real vices in going down that route here. Again, and and I think Judge Pan correctly identified at least what is our position, we don't disagree that that is a sufficient way in certain contexts to establish uh, that someone has acted corruptly. I think the tax law case law is the most clear example of that. Um, but to my knowledge, there is not a single area of law that, uh, you know, whether we're talking about uh, bribery, um, obstruction, uh, that, that that has used this unlawful benefit um, outside of the tax law context. I, I should walk that back. I think there's one Ninth Circuit case uh, in a bribery case that talks about benefit, um, but by and large, Um, When we're in the judicial context, uh, many cases actually just say the intent to obstruct is enough to get you to corruptly.
3: But Mr. Pierce, just stepping back and thinking in in the sort of common sense way, when you hear the term corruptly, how how does that really apply here? It it does seem like the core of corruptly is some kind of um, often secrecy, dishonesty, quid pro quo, behind the scenes. There's a sort of distortion, um, you know, which the law in in the sort of archaic terms so somewhat unhelpfully refers to as like depraved or evil. Um, this open, angry uh, mob attacking the capital, Corruption is not, if you're just talking to people in ordinary problems, it doesn't really seem to fit. Can you respond sort of at that level of you know, common sense understanding and why using felonious means is a corruption?
4: So I, I do and I want to resist one of the, I think, sort of sides you had in setting up that question, which is that the law unhelpfully refers to things like base, evil, perverted, I think the core of what corruptly and corruption is, and it's not so much what I think. I mean, certainly the Supreme Court in Anderson says it, this court said it in Poindexter, is this idea of, of evil or wrongfulness, right? And I and I recognize that um, as, as courts have said, and again, as this court certainly said in Poindexter, you know, asking a jury just to say, is this wrongful, you know, could conceivably lead to, hey, this is a little bit too open-ended. Um, and, and I think that what is in terms of even when something is open. Uh, using independently unlawful means is here an effective proxy for what is wrong in many respects. Now, there and may be... Do you
1: think you can be openly corrupt?
4: Uh, yes, I, 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 I mean, and I think I heard your honor suggest you were aware of a number of politicians who are openly corrupt, but I, yes, I think it is possible to be openly corrupt, and I think the defendant was, uh, as were, were many of the others involved in the violence on January 6th.
3: Is it? I mean, one of the things I've been wondering about is, is the, you know, a non-pro quo, non-dishonest form of corruption is nonetheless sort of a twisting or a, or a distortion of the way things are supposed to work. And in terms of thinking, again, and kind of how do ordinary people use the term corrupt, the corruption here could be, you know, trying to to distort, um, contort the certification process. Like, does that, is that captured by your definition? Does that resonate with you? I, I, I think
4: that's correct. Uh, I believe we cited in our brief a, a Ninth Circuit case from 1949, Katrino that talks about obstruction as uh, sort of guarding against the, uh, the criminal mind, the imagination of the criminal mind to obstruct in in all sorts of different ways. And when Congress enacted uh, 1512 back in 1982, the legislative history has sort of similar language. um, The idea being, yes, there is a distortion, a contortion of, uh, you know, statutorily it has to be an official proceeding here. And in our view, certainly that was the January 6th certification proceeding. But I think the point is that what corruptly does, uh, you know, against the backdrop of, of what I just mentioned, is recognize the many ways in which uh, people can go about doing that. They can go about doing it in the sort of the stealthy or sneaky ways that I think I heard my friend on the other side mention that I think you ascribe to sort of the common idea that this is some sort of backroom unlawful dealing. Um, but going and barging in to Congress, just like if somebody came barging in here to stop this proceeding, um, that contorts or distorts, uh, obstructs, impedes uh, the, uh, the official proceeding. Uh, and thus, you know, would qualify as as corrupt.
1: Can I ask you about, we're here reviewing a a denial of a motion for judgment of acquittal. Do you agree that our two alternatives are either to affirm or vacate the conviction?
0: Um,
4: I think there is some potential leeway to to send it back to say uh, uh, the government's the, the, the definition that the defendant sought below was so distinct from what they're asking for now uh, that, 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 a, that a retrial is potentially available um, but uh, generally I, I do think the, the polls are the, are the two that you described okay.
3: And the the interplay between and there's no forfeiture when we're doing a sufficiency analysis there's no forfeiture of the particular theory we're just we're just trying to correctly interpret the statute, and then assess the sufficiency of evidence against that
4: That, interpretation. That is my understanding of the Musacchio case, which uh, this court uh, then, I think, adopted in Hilly. Uh, Judge Henderson wrote wrote separately there, perhaps uh, identifying a different reading of it. But but our our view is, um, notwithstanding what is at at a minimum forfeiture, arguably waiver by suggesting essentially the jury instruction that uh, was supplied, and then arguing for something else on appeal. I think sufficiency requires the court to interpret the statute, but the statute requires and measure the evidence against that.
3: And and can you just briefly state what you think is the narrowest holding that would sustain this judgment?
4: Uh, I I think I started to to set that up earlier, but I think if the court were to say. Independently felonious means uh, used to uh, obstruct an official proceeding uh, is sufficient, and here the defendant used—I uh, mentioned already—that at least the three felonies to in service of, of his obstruction. Um, that I think would be the narrowest. We think, uh,
3: and the state of mind there is knowingly engaging in. in- is in independently felonious means or does it not matter as long as they're intending to do what they're doing and those are defined by the law as felonies?
4: Uh, the, the latter. So I think I think the, the state of mind, this is sort of why I started where I, I started in terms of the three components of mens rea. Certainly a defendant has to have the specific intent to obstruct the proceeding. Um, in the course of that, uh, you know, if that person commits uh, independently criminal conduct here uh, felonies. Obviously, we have to prove whatever the state of mind is for those particular felonies, but uh, I don't think that corruptly adds some additional mens rea term to that independent finding of, of unlawfulness. I, I will say, though that is the narrowest polling, uh, uh, that nonetheless, you know, uh, this court will see cases that don't involve, in the January 6th context, that don't involve independently felonious, and I don't think there's anything in the word corruptly that would limit uh, uh, the the word to to that extent. Um, I recognize, as Judge Katzis said in dissent, that there are potentially some category of of cases, a protester in the gallery, that kind of thing, that that could raise some questions, but there are ways to deal with those uh, that uh, I think still preserve the core of what corruptly is. I mean, the court, as an example, could read in something like a public welfare offense um, in, in the Morissette case that says basically, look, things that don't damage property or cause injury to persons, and what Je- Justice Jackson said, you know, don't involve uh, sort of aggressive invasions, things that aren't wrongful, right, to get back to the core of what corruptly does. Um, those are the kinds of things that might not be enough Candidly, I don't think the court's going to see anything on January 6th that would fall into the public welfare category. And Judge Taylor, to your point, I don't think the court has to actually reach that and address that here. Um, But I just want to sort of sketch out the government's position uh, that although the narrowest holding would be independently felonious means, uh, we don't think that that is uh, all of what corruptly reaches. Is
3: 1752, is that a felony or misdemeanor or could
4: it be either? Uh, it could be either. So uh, 1752A, 1 through 5 sets out what are misdemeanors. Subsection B uh, makes it into a felony if it involves the use or possession of a dangerous weapon. Uh, the defendant here possessed the large stick that the jury concluded was a dangerous weapon. That transformed 1752, in this context, the two charges, the, the trespass and the disorderly disruptive conduct, into uh, a felony effect. All
1: right. There
3: no are so, more questions. Thank you. Uh, do you oh, want to hear sorry. anything on yes. sentencing? My time is
4: up, so I'm happy to sit down. But I, I'd, I'd like also... to hear.
3: I'd like to hear on sentencing your your position on that. Okay.
4: Um, so at, at, at the first cut, uh, the defendant uh, forfeited this argument below, uh, and thus this court's review is for plain error. Uh, the fact that there is, you know, at least one judge, Judge McFadden, who has uh, uh, reached <laughs> the conclusion that he has is uh, uh, counterposed by the the district court's ruling below, as well as some others we said in our brief, I think I uh, added one supplemental authority that we think reaches the right conclusion. And so just as a matter of forfeiture and plain error review, we don't think there's a clear uh, clear error uh, that would warrant uh, relief.
1: Why do you think we need to get to plain error? We're on the review of a judgment of acquittal and we're looking at the sufficiency of the evidence under a properly charged jury.
4: I'm, I'm responding to the Sensing question, enha-
3: right? enhancements. You're talking about the sentence. So I moved on oh, to the sensing okay. enhancements. Okay. Yeah,
4: okay. not plain error with respect to the
3: sufficiency. Yeah. And what about the, that uh, sensing colloquy that uh, Mr. Cohn pointed to in the in the defendant's appendix? Um court finds the enhancement applied, the offense did result in substantial interference. So there's clearly, it was raised and made an issue in that.
4: But that's, it, it was, what was raised was the factual challenge, right? So the two enhancements, uh, the eight level enhancement is for threatening or causing property damage or injury to person. Uh, and the second one is for substantial interference. And the argument on the first was I didn't engage in threatening behavior uh, that, le- that, that warrants its enhancement. And the second is my conduct didn't result, uh, it didn't contribute to a substantial interference. It was not the argument that even if you were to reach that factual matter, it doesn't matter because what was obstructed was not the administration of justice. It was, um, in fact. Uh, a congressional proceeding, whereas instead administration of justice has this narrower conception of a judicial proceeding. Uh, The way plain error works, right, is is to ensure that, you know, arguments have a full airing below, the district court has a chance to resolve it. That didn't happen here. So that, in our view, is why that was not adequately preserved. Just to object is not enough. It's to to lay out the theory, let the the district court, you know, consider that theory and, and land wherever the court would land. All right. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Cohn, Why don't you take two minutes?
2: <clears throat> I just on the plain air point, First, judge the only case the government cites for plain error is a judge where is a case where the defense counsel did not object at all. Okay, we clearly don't have that here. I don't agree with my esteemed adversaries' reading of the sentencing transcript. Um, Judge Pillard, you asked me for the page number of the uh, lead opinion in Fisher that collected cases. It's pages 337 and 338.
3: Got it. Thanks. The, Sorry.
2: Of the opinion. And um, in those lists of cases, which again I see as extremely useful, the um, the acts are lying in written responses to civil interrogatory questions seeking a false alibi witness attempting to orchestrate a grand jury witness's testimony
3: just going back to the to the plain error question you said the only case the government cites is one in which there was no objection at all do you have any cases in which there was an objection but on different legal grounds that we held preserved uh an objection to an enhancement on a different theory
2: offhand I do not remember
3: but I'm, I'm happy to look at such a case and if the court would like submitted a if you if you have such a case it would help us to focus on the nature of the uh, what's required to preserve
2: understood judge
3: um,
2: i I would only reiterate uh, if this is truly an issue the the statement of Judge Cooper and sentencing. I think the argument, Mr. Rollins, defense counsel, is that the thing that was interfered with was the certification of the vote. And there was both a delay in the certification of the riot and substantial costs were incurred to respond to the damage caused by the riot. It's the reason, as you you well know, is the whole plain error is to make sure that the trial judge had a fair opportunity to address whether or not what the issue. And the trial judge understood. He's saying incorrectly that the delay in certification of, uh, of vote is, is an injury, is is obstructing the administration of justice.
3: Well that he, is, doesn't wrong. that prove the opposite? Because he's saying, obviously, there's an obstruction with the administration of justice it's a certification and nobody's saying oh judge no that's not
2: covered but he's ruling at this point right but that he's ruling in response to the trial counsel's argument that there's that, that this enhancement applies when there's I'm quoting from uh, trial counsel a premature or improper termination of a felony investigation and when someone has caused that investigation that investigation, to spend more money, such as lying to officers or lying to the FBI, where they're committing perjury. Defense counsel is correctly saying, Judge, that's obstructing the administration of justice. That's, and that's not what my client was up to. That's what he's doing right there. Um, and the government has to spend more money to kind of go around those lies. Defense counsel was exactly right. And he says, in he asks, hopefully for present purposes, and I think that's exactly what the enhancement applies to. And the judge on the same page rejects the, it says, counsel, Mr. Rollins, the argument is that the thing that was interfered with was the certification of the vote. The court is clearly rejecting this correct focus on whether or not
1: an investigation was um, was was obstructed. All right, if there are no more questions, Mr. Cohn, you were appointed by this court to represent your client, and we thank you for your very able assistance. Thank
2: you, Judge.